coming from another dimension. We are honored. Indeed. James, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Well, shall we? Let's jump in. Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to another Originated Podcast. This is our Ancot series. Uh, This is our third attempt at making sense of is it the third attempt carl or is it the fourth it de- it depends on what continues if you're <laughs> our third attempt at it could be a lot of things <laughs> but if it's our third attempt at tackling the stages of faith by james fowler then i would have to give you a thumbs up that's now it's incredible. our second second attempt at james fowler um it's our third or fourth attempt at <laughs> discussing emotional and spiritual learning. And this week, we are fortunate to have uh, a guest with us, Mr. James Terrell of Collaborative Growth and uh, a series of other um, adventures that he's gone through. Uh, I've known this gentleman for a long time, I think since I was 19. So that's going on a couple decades or more. Almost three decades. Wow. Sounded um, like a confession. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, James, would you uh, would you care to just introduce yourself, your background? Um, as we as we go here, I think people understand why you are particularly qualified to speak on this topic and why we wanted you your voice and your input <clears throat> on this uh, going forward. Well, thank you both very much for having me. It's a very interesting topic that you are um, exploring, and I suspect you may have sort of dangled that out there just to to get me to bite. Be <laughs> no no problem whatsoever. No shame here. <laughs> <laughs> we we, we spiritual folk really enjoy a a fisherman analogy, so keep those coming. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ye fishers of men have caught me, I guess I'd have to say. Um, So my background, I would claim to be in mental health and communications training. I have on numerous occasions told groups of adult learners that I've made 90% of the money that I've made in my life professionally because of my listening skills. Mm. I went through a very... Uh, in-depth training when I was at the university in the Kharkov human relations training model. And just a quick um, explanation of that, when we started the uh, quarter, we were on the quarter system at CSU at that time, our professor said, uh, here's what you have to do to pass the class. You have to be able to listen to one of your classmates speak for one minute. Then you have to remain silent for half a minute and then repeat verbatim what they said. Everybody just, you know, laughed and, you know, threw up their hands. Wow. But um, seven and a half weeks later, uh, I think it was, virtually everybody could do it pretty well. Now, I certainly wouldn't claim to be able to do that today, um, but I would suggest that anyone with the uh, intention and training uh, could learn to do that. Once you do, One of the things that happens is at least a certain amount of the background noise in your own head 
can go away. You can sort of turn that off. You can focus in such a way that the um, the internal dialogue uh, at least honors your attention to someone else. Wow. So. And how do you spell Kharkov? C-A-R-K-H-U-F, maybe two Fs. Robert Kharkov. He did um, some of the first measurable training for therapists. He had a documentable response category, I guess you'd say, or um, there was five levels of responding. And he had each level of responding spelled out very specifically, and he could rate the quality of your therapeutic response wow. with by that method. Hmm. The idea was to be able to give a level one, two, three, four, or five response. And a level three, if you were able to respond to someone with a level three response as a therapist, you would be able to both match their feeling and their meaning. So in other words, if you were telling me, I'm I'm really worried because I've got a student who um, isn't doing very well and I'm concerned it's because he's not eating, and I was able to reflect for you and say, it sounds like you're worried about your student because he may not be getting enough food, that would be a level three response. Now, interestingly enough, that seems pretty easy to do. And it is, unless you're a therapist. Because if you're really? a therapist, you want to help people. Right. You want to be well, telling so, how it is. Yeah, so dial dial into that a little bit more. What is the, um, is that an ego thing? Or is it a, um, or does it go with the mission um, or objective of the occupation? <clears throat> Well, unfortunately, both. Um, It sort of is your job to help people make sense out of things. But the problem is that for a lot of therapists, they um, are impatient and they want credit and they want to see the efficacy of their work um, kind of on their own schedule rather than on the client's schedule. And by giving someone a level three response consistently, being able to just basically reflect what they're feeling and why they're feeling that way, they'll be able to conduct their own self-exploration at a level and at a rate that makes sense for them. Mm. So if you give a level one response instead of a level three response, it means you didn't get the feeling right. You didn't get the meaning right. You blew them both. Mm-hmm. level two right. response you got one right one wrong level three response you got two right level four response you start adding some insight into what you're reflecting to the person so you might expand what they're saying and give it a little bit more context mm-hmm. so i might say in the example that i gave uh you've got a Uh, a student who's not really um, getting their work done. Um, They're, they're not, they're, they're failing to thrive, shall we say, and you're concerned because it might be because they don't have enough food. And there was that time when one of your students ended up 
dropping out because his family was starving and he had to feed him. So I might bring something into the conversation that I know about that you haven't, you know, been discussing yourself. And if I can do that with enough elegance and with enough, um, if I can make that connection for you, if I can bond that meaning for you gently and with um, correct timing, then you'll grow from it. It'll, it'll be a, an insight and you'll be able to accept it. If I drag up something that you're not ready to, to go with yet, then you actually harden your um, shell, so to speak, mm-hmm. and become less helpable than the failure for that is the, on the, on the therapist. This is pretty timely because last week's episode, we started the entire thing off by talking about how WhatsApp forces people to learn how to actively listen. Wow. And um, what you're describing is an entire rubric around how someone with that intention of listening might cultivate that habit, that skill, that skill set. Last week's episode focused on the, the, the fact that within a, within a WhatsApp thread, you have these, you know, 30 second, two minute, sometimes four or five, 20 minute voice messages, just talking that you've got to go through and, uh, no one gets to interrupt them. <laughs> so, so the whole WhatsApp thread like completely removes <laughs> the phenomenon of talking over one another in a, in a live conversation. Um, well, not only, is... not only the interruptions like this one, right. Um, that create a certain fluidity and it's a different skill set. Right. Um, right. And, and, but, but also just the affirmation um, that when one is going into something and others are around to affirm you through what you're talking about, something very, very different when you, you just put out an audio message. Not really sure if any of this is going to, in the whole time that you're laying out that 15, you know, seven minutes, you have no one shaking their head or, you know, like saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's another muscle right. that's developing in that you, you, well, of course you can do a retake, right? just delete and then right. send off again. <laughs> Certainly all done that at some point, but then you also have this point where like after the seven minute threshold, you're like, eh, no matter if this doesn't hit the spot, I'm going for it. Right. Anyway, you're having this entire conversation in your head that does not happen um, in the live exchanges in which there is that fluidity that you were talking about. Yeah, it, it does give people a different opportunity to, within their own limits of risk uh, taking, to develop that authentic voice uh, in the time that it takes them to develop it. Uh, what we have noticed is that in step with the development of technology, uh, different generations have the uh, technology that they're comfortable with. So 
pressing, you know, a button and recording your voice and hearing your voice be recorded and, and even listening back to it and being comfortable with that is not a hard ask for, uh, let's say the generation over 45, over 40. Uh, the younger that you get, the more of an ask that really is because they have not grown up with, uh, say, answering machines where you're calling directly and you get a you get an answer machine and you leave your your voice message on the answering machine and they're not hearing they're not getting answer you know voice messages from other friends so they don't have that culture around them what their culture has really grown up with is texting language and so they in a situation like this where often you know someone new that is younger in a, in a thread like the what like one of our whatsapp threads they will exclusively text and it'll be <clears throat> these book long texts like like just you know pages and pages <laughs> of just doing voice to text um which for some of us uh, myself in particular is a real challenge because i hit those those messages when i'm uh driving so the last thing that I want to do is read, you know, a novel uh, in on my phone while I'm trying to commute. Um, right. But hitting, being able to bounce from from message to message and and cleanly move between different speakers and on 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 a given topic is um, is very fulfilling. It's very rewarding. And then if I hit a a piece of long text, I just have to stop where I'm at and wait till I'm in a, in a place where it makes sense to be able to read this long message. And we usually try to coach people into being comfortable using their voice because if they're talking into the text anyway, they may as well just be putting their voice out there uh, because then we get, we get a different human element back into the game. It's not hundred percent as authentic as a live conversation, but at least you get to hear their intonation. At least you get to hear, feel like you're getting to know who they are. You're getting those those real vibrations from their voice rather than um, uh, some imaginary thing that's happening within text. So well, um, the, just to touch on the text thing a little bit more too, which is an interesting aspect of the self-correction that can take place. Mm. Text allows the possibility to look over, right? As you would in a school form, right? Schools which have eliminated oratory, at least you don't want to like sound, you know, bad for this or that. And you can go over your ideas when it's, you know, like over this excruciating, I've seen people like excruciatingly go over every detail, like read and reread just to like an email, you know, like, Hey, uh, my resume is attached. Right. Um, you know, because there's just such an low level of self-confidence and for, for, you know, it's not a, you know, we're, we're not even trying to get it to the point of publishing, you know, we're just trying to send me what you think. Right. But the text form on the phone allows that going back. Whereas in, if you're communicating a book page amount of audio, you have to start all over again and deliver or else 
start all over again. There's no possibility of really going back in and kind of tweaking a certain thing that you didn't like in its text form. Well, you can edit a little bit of that out as if you're watching it, if you're watching the text appear as you're doing voice to text, um, you can, you know, hit the backspace and delete a word and no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking talking about your ideas. So if you're communicating how you feel about a situation, right? Let's imagine a boyfriend and a girlfriend, they're having this discussion about what took place, right? And you've like, you're ready to fire it off, right? You can go back and kind of tweak like, "Mm, no, I should add this part here, right? Uh, That's a very different type of like, Uh yeah, like, and I I think that's a part of that comfort level, like being able to see everything that I want to say and all right, send it off. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, you can't do that when you're recording audios and just, no. you know, talking about things, you have to start all over. <laughs> That's got to be frustrating after like take 13. Yeah. But I love what James is getting at here because he's, this is a skill set for the live application where, right. you know, where you don't need WhatsApp to coach you. Like it's the technology of it forces you to be a listener. It, you don't have yeah. a choice. Um yeah. If you're not going to listen, then your responses will be irrelevant. And then you're removing yourself as a participant within uh, within the context of that, that discussion. And, and maybe this is not a new thing. Maybe it has nothing to do with technology. But I, but I suspect that technology in the sense that everything that I do with my technology, you know, every all of my input, like I get to say what I want to say and send it out and no one gets to say stop or no one interrupts me in in my technological you know advances uh no one stops me mid thought and says well no what about this mm. um and and so we you know culturally i've seen this at least at the high school level and maybe um you know within 20 somethings is that the actual real discussion is more difficult um uh, because they're they're not used to that back and forth. The back and forth is it seems like a confrontation, and it could just be that you're asking them to clarify. Right, but right. but that doesn't happen within the technology, and so <laughs> you're this. It seems like James, your your model is more valuable now than ever. I, I, I don't know. I, I, that's, that's maybe speculation, but it, but it makes, it makes sense. Anyone who's in a live, live application or dealing with communication with live communication settings, um, it, it, it makes sense beyond just a therapist and, uh, and a client sort of thing. It makes sense. Well, on a systems level, like as a basic part of what it means to be a part of a group or 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 a team, co- being colleagues with with other people, I, I I don't know. I'd suggest that the only reason that we need a therapist is because our ability to communicate intimately in the moment has been injured along the way somewhere, and um, we're used to <clears throat> the sort of mistreatment that um, intimacy receives in the. Uh, the workplace or the marketplace or the 
uh, cultural sphere, whatever you call it, the, the meta sphere or something. And, mm. uh, but uh, the ability to tell you what I really want um, exists within each one of us. And sometimes we do have to um, be reassured and coaxed and shown that it's safe to share that. And the really surprising thing that happens in therapeutic situations is that people learn stuff about themselves that they, they always knew, but they were kind of hiding from themselves. You're bringing up the word safe, which means that we are in the emotional uh, domain. And so one of our, uh, just to give, uh, bring all of our listeners into the context of what we're um, trying to get at here is that we're really interested in uh, tangible methodologies that we can engage in to help foster healthy development of emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence. Uh, what does that look like? Is it possible? You know, how do other people engage in it? Is there is there part of my skill set that I can improve by taking the, for instance, the application or the model that James has introduced tonight, and uh, and by employing that directly tomorrow in in my high school class, which I will do, and provide myself some feedback on on what that looks like. But we're wholly within, you know, the the, the skill set that we're really talking through right now is one of emotional pedagogy. We're not so concerned with whether you got the right answer on the math test. What we are concerned with is, uh, do you feel heard? Um, is Does what I have to contribute, um, is it relevant to where you're coming from? Um, did I make sense of it correctly enough to uh, to have some sort of relevant feedback that helps the situation, that actually improves it, that provides, like you said, uh, some sort of insight um, and and uh, gets to a, you said a stage four, and maybe not a stage. Uh, level four. Level four uh, response. Was this, at the time when you were learning this, James, was it cutting edge? Was it? It's still cutting edge. That was back in 1972 or three, and it's still as apropos as it ever was. I, I'm not sure what you put up on the screen there. I imagine a lot of people have added thoughts to you know Karkov's work, and I'm sure he's gone in many other directions since then. I haven't been following him. But hey, James, I got a question for you because um, it sounds a lot like Adler. Are you familiar with Ad I think his first name is Alfred Adler, in which his therapeutic approach is is to speak back to the person what they are going through, and and it's interesting that you're saying like back you said in the late '60s, right? Probably early 70s, 72, and, and, 73. You know, and you say it's as contemporary, you know, and as needed um, today as it was then. And, you know, if, if, if we were to say, you know, root it back to Adler, you know, we're talking end of the 18th century. Um, 
cutting edge then as well. And then before that, you know, like the philosophical discourse, you know, even like that takes place, like, you know, Socrates, that like the, the foundation of, you know, modern, let's call it philosophy, like happening in these long discourse exchanges that require that active listening. It's, it's, I love how you've boiled it down into, you want to, you want to, have some sort of feel of like emotional, spiritual um, intelligence or whatnot, like how, how well can you listen? Let me say that the listening is kind of a metaphor in and of itself. Um, when I teach this method or this material to people, I mean, I usually don't get that much time to, to do it. I don't usually get like, um, uh, it's probably a three-hour class, so I don't probably get three hours a week for eight weeks. Um, I might get two hours twice um, to to present this. But what I tell people is you better be listening with your elbows. It's not just about your ears. You, you better be listening with your eyelashes, with the hair on, the, on your back. Every bit of you had better be pointed towards that person's meaning and their feeling so that you, you know, kind of like an antenna are are receiving the whole thing because <clears throat> when you're actually um, have developed sufficient rapport with this person and can do what's called an additive response, it's because you've heard them say things that they don't know are meaningful to themselves. So then I can introduce something that's not a basic you feel blank because blank. Mm. I I can use that. I can say you feel blank because blank. And when you have to do it in this situation, you feel pretty scared or whatever it is, whatever the additive bit is. And they look astonished. How did you know that? Well, I just sat here and listened and you told me that. And when it was the right time and you had let me know it was the right time, then I just shared it with you again. So speak a little bit more to that. We, we talk about the right time uh, often from this perspective of uh, we specifically use the word Kairos. It's the, that it's a moment of Kairos where it's the, uh, because uh, the Greeks had uh, two qualifications for time. They had Kronos or the chronology, which is time as we know it today. Um, you know, a second is a second, a minute is a minute. Uh, an hour is an hour, but they also had this idea of uh, kairos, which is the the right time for something to happen. Um, what? How do you develop a sense for when the right time is? This is a this is an, a fascinating concept for for me, and I love to hear people's own personal skills skill sets and how how they come to this well there's a whole lot of trusting your intuition and um allowing what i'll call your own native intelligence to speak through you um there'll be times when i'm I don't do very much therapy anymore. Uh, I do coach people in emotional intelligence and I'll debrief them in a 
particular assessment that I've done thousands of times. So in a way, it can be um, never perfunctory, but but um, the the field of, of options is pretty well laid out. We're going to talk about 16 different skills and how they influence a person's communication, behavior, feelings, whatever. I'll find myself saying things that, you know, maybe I really shouldn't have said. Really? And um, <laughs> here's how it usually works. Either the person goes, whoa, yeah, that, that would be a good idea or, or whatever, or it goes right over their head and um, they, don't, they, don't, they don't respond. So if my, I'm going to say unconscious, but in quotes, if my unconscious is, you know, tuned into yours or to the, the clients and um, the communication is happening on that level, I'm not going to know when that right moment is and, and just bang right on it, you know, like, like the, the triangle, you know, in the symphony or something. I, it's just going to happen. Hmm. Now, James, um, going back a little bit more, um, you know, you started kind of with your, with your, with your studies. Um, but what, what kind of took you, what, what, what was happening before, um, especially as we think about the, the evolutions, whatever the rubric is of emotional, spiritual development, certainly through that training into becoming, you know, ready for, um, you know, helping people out. There must have been stages prior to that that kind of grew that interest and that uh, or the awareness of that gift that you had. Um, can you talk about the even earlier years a little bit? Um, people helped me. People listened to me. And when they did, and they um, they were helpful, and they helped me connect the dots, I said, wow, <laughs> if you can do this, this is pretty good stuff. Where did you learn about this dude? Am I, was I right or did yeah. you find something? Alfred Albert. Yeah. No, I forget what I was doing, but um I think I, I think it was when I was kind of studying um Javier's mom a little bit. Basically, it really works really well with like unintelligible kind of, you know, in her <clears> case, <throat> she's schizophrenic, right? So like just to be able to repeat back to her and allow her to hear things at her level so this is an interesting thing like you know so she's schizophrenic and anything that you say in response to somebody like that flies over their head let alone the way that it works on with children right you know like so so a kid's like hey you know like you know tommy was really being mean you know well tommy was was really being mean yeah right and <laughs> they play right off of that and and they go on with the next thing that they're needing to say because you're you're saying right that right back to them and they're just playing with that playing off of them right um that energy of having been heard right and it just leads itself along um and you can't overshoot because you're just 
bouncing back the same ball in the same way. Um, anyway, so. Well, it's acting you know, like I, a mirror. It's a kind of mirroring that happens. And the more accurately you can mirror what's going on for someone else, the more clearly they can see the bits of themselves that they have, you know, maybe been hiding. <laughs> this comes to mind now and it's so precious to me. I'm just going to say it. There's a great Procol Harem song called She Wandered Through the Backyard Fence. And the lyric that I just love, it says, I hastened to make my reply and found that I could only lie. And like a fool, I believed myself. that's the nature of what we're up against most of us have you know like a fool believed ourselves and um believed other people around us and now we're committed to this kind of um less than authentic uh, representation of self and have to deconstruct it yeah we're dialing this up um so last week's podcast, we really tried to get into a little bit of the discussion around the the word authentic and, and well, what does this word authentic really mean? Is it possible to perform, to be in a performance that's also authentic? Or because it's performance, is it all pretense? Is it possible to, um, to have been programmed in a certain way that is just what happened and you know, it could have happened, you know, a billion different ways, but is the programming that I received having the parents that I had growing up and the differences that my brothers and sisters have from the programming that they received growing up, even though they're it's the same parents, it's not really the same programming, but it is programming. So was I not authentic until... I took the first step that didn't include them, but that first step always included them based on where I was starting from, right? Like it's a kind of a chicken and an egg thing, but I think that we don't have to to be that um, rhetorical about it. Uh, It is a sort of thing where it's like, I look at, if we took Steiner's, uh, Rudolf Steiner's, challenge to educators who would be to um that our job is to facilitate walk alongside to be present and witness of the student becoming all that they can be um that really to me it means getting out of their way mostly it means minimizing my impact as much as possible so that they can have all the uh, assets that they need to be able to become who they were meant to become. And that's not something that I invent. It's something that they emerge. But if we look at that idea of of a level playing field, that no one is a tabla rasa, right? Like there, no one is a blank canvas, really. Uh, everyone's coming from something. You don't, you know, it is this combination of nature and nurture. And so you're going to get some, some equation that you're starting with, even if it's at a very young age, say six months, 
uh, where it seems like you still have all the possibility in the world. Well, what is authentic at that point? I think you can authentically imitate your parents. <clears throat> I think you can authentically follow the modeling that they give you, even if it's bad modeling. I think that in some ways we're wired to do that naturally. And that if we do it naturally, we may look as silly as they do. Or, in fact, they might see their own silliness in our attempts to um, <laughs> model them authentically. Well, and, that, and that's what, what's happening with mirror neurons, right? Like, there's a reason that children mimic what they see. Because we have these mirror neurons that are are built of, like, I'm going to copy that because that's what I see happening. So that makes sense. Like, whatever that whatever that is, that's what I'm going to copy. And if my teacher is we see this on at the preschool level really really fast so you have a, a class that moves um from one year it's a very peaceful very you know um calm class and, and and then they move to a class where the teacher is a yeller right and the teacher the way that the teacher gets things done is by raising his or her voice and Within just a month or so, all of those kids are yellers because that's the way you get things done in that class. I see. <clears throat> right. Teaching from the perspective of being very cognizant that mirror neurons exist, it makes me more careful about what I'm modeling. Right. 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 So I'm I'm super conscious about what I'm modeling. Um because I know that all of those eyes are picking up on whatever I do and whatever I say. Uh, and so I have some choices as, you know, as another uh, adult in the room. Um, I can reinforce what they're seeing from other adults. Um, and they're trained to look for adults to, to actually gravitate to the adults for the cues, the big cues about like, this is what I should do, or this is what I shouldn't do. Um, and in some cases, it's I'm going to do what I shouldn't do, because it's what gets me the most attention, because that's, and it gets me the most attention from the people that mean the most, you know, from from the big people, uh, the people that are in charge of what I get to do, and what I don't get to do. Or if there's a punishment, if there's something punitive around the corner, it's these people that will dose it out to me, right? They're trained, you know, at a very young age on how to negotiate this world of like, here's the as adults. It's the adults that drive the car. So if you want to go, you know, if you want to go to Chuck E. Cheese, it's like, you got to get, get those big people to make it happen for you, um, <laughs> you know? If you want, uh, if you want a new toy, if you want this or that, if you want this food, this that food, if you want to watch this, if you want your device, you got to convince the people who are in control of that, to some degree. And some and and with some kids, it's easier than it is with other with other adults, right? Listen, some, some kids have adults that 
that have low thresholds on what you have to do, what kind of like circus you have to put on uh, to be able to get what you want. And so we, we as adults in, the, in this situation get to watch all of that happen. We get to watch it play out. And I have to be very conscious uh, about how my feedback, the feedback of, of the modeling that I have fits in with the world that they, um, and the reality that they're dealing with on a daily basis. I think I'll just <clears throat> mention one thing that occurred to me when you're talking about mirror neurons. My sense of them, and this isn't based on research or anything, is that they are pretty um, pre-choice. That, that it's not like, well, that's what I'm seeing out there, so that's what I'm going to mirror. It's like kind of it just happens, you know what I sure. mean? If it's happening out there, it's happening in here. I probably didn't choose to have it happen in here. And that may be one of the reasons not to plug your kids into video games where they spend the day killing other people with, you know, a variety of weapons. Right. Mm. Well, that that's, I, I think that makes the, it makes the responsibility of me within the context there because it's pre-choice. It makes it even more. Right. Uh, You're not going to be able to plan so how to give an authentic uh, lesson. You're just going to be able to work on your own authenticity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to. I have to work on which version of my authentic authenticity <laughs> I want to like be, you know, exposing at 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 every moment. And so uh, authenticity is not synonymous with like no filter. Like, I think that that's, we should throw that out there. Like you can censor yourself, but still be authentic. Um, <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, that That's maybe good and, and very positive, <laughs> positive self-control in some cases. But the word authentic, I think, I think it does have the ability to be manipulated a little bit in terms of like, oh, well, if I'm doing something that isn't positive, then it's not authentic to me. Or I can probably name the, the, where I got that inauthentic behavior. And, um, and then I don't have to be accountable to it. And, and I think that that's not really healthy either. Right. Right. Like people are making decisions that affect the world and themselves and their local community, uh, you know, that are maybe severe or maybe uh, trivial all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that if they don't like the result, that it's an inauthentic thing. Um, however, at, like at what point, and, and this is a very philosophical thing, at what point does the act of engaging in something inauthentic for for a long enough period of time it's like it's like telling yourself a lie so so long that then you believe the lie right, right. Well, well at what point is it not inauthentic anymore it's just authentically a part of the narrative that has gotten you to where you're at yeah the, uh, authenticity um has little to do with accuracy. 
um, with validity. It, it has to do more with delivery. I mean, aren't children <laughs> that we, we always hold in these, um, you know, um, broad stroke uh, thrones of oh children you know the 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 infallibles right like oftentimes children are authentically wrong about everything that they believe in right and 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 there's no loss of authenticity in 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 what they're expressing but it you know has nothing to do with um the validity of what of the point they're making it and and it, you know so it's just different realms Yeah, we, we talked a bit last either last week or the week before about the litmus test uh, with with youth in terms of testing their ability for abstract thought uh, using utilizing humor. Humor is the uh, as a as a test as a diagnostic tool, and um, some kids I can say how was your weekend and they can say good. And I can say, did you take your unicorn to the supermarket and and it ate all of the carrots again? And some kids will laugh and say, yes, I did that. And some kids mm -hmm. will say, will get very sober and serious and say, no, I don't have a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And that difference, both both answers are authentic. Correct. Right. Um, and both answers say something about what's happening on the other side. What hap what's happening in the in-between of the question, right? When they're processing that question, do they think that I'm being literal? Or do they see through all of the uh, language to inferring that the entire thing is an imagine is it is happening within the imagination and is not meant to be a literal statement or question. And some children that are three, four, five years old can do that, can see through all of that. Mm -hmm. And authentically they laugh and they think it's silly right mm -hmm. and some children have are are operating from a perspective of more um definitely more severe literalism and so their response is going to be one of almost insult <laughs> For, for us for asking such a ridiculous question right well would you would you polarize to that the child that finds it hilarious but doesn't realize that you were joking see both both you have two different types of response to the humor around you know they have all kinds of responses but the two that i'm polarizing is like they both find it funny and one finds it funny because they know you're joking Right, and the, and other, the other one, one finds it funny I, because you're goofy. Right. They think I, they think that I'm serious, and why would I ask such a ridiculous question? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. You can qualify. It. You you can you you can dice it up at at that level. Um, but 
but my point is that any response is an authentic res- response. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that a child couldn't have an inauthentic response. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe they fear me. I don't know. And they're afraid of what might happen if they give the wrong answer. I don't know. This, I think, happens at the high school level when I present a question. And then the student has the ability to think through maybe some of the ramifications that they believe are possible if depending on what response that they have. And in general, the easiest thing to say in response to any question at that level is, I don't know, or fine. You know, it's it's a non-response. It's it's like yeah. I'm not going to commit anything. And there is a level of authenticity even in that because they're authentically, they're not, they do not trust me. And so there's that's what they're saying, right? No, I don't trust you to give you anything more than this. And that's authentic. I have to accept that and say, okay, well, this is this is where we're at. They are honestly saying that this is where our relationship is. And mm-hmm. and and that's and I can do with it what I will. I can mm-hmm. reject it. I can you know, have my ego hurt or, you know, or I can say, oh, wow, that's interesting. How, what do I need to do to begin to, you know, establish um, maybe a a higher level of trust with, with this person? James. I would have felt um, disturbed, um, frightened, a little disrespected to have you pose that question to me because in the home that I grew up, it was way more serious than that. We didn't do that. There was things to be learned and we kept focus on that. And when those were learned, there was new stuff to learn. And um, there wasn't um, a space that could be that whimsical. There was not a safe space for that sort of whimsy, perhaps. Um, When you said, yeah, that's what happened, that was like a completely unexpected response to me. Uh, In that case, some part of me did laugh. And and, um, the thought that a child could uh, appreciate it that way um, was delightful to some some part of me. In my experience, I mean, I guess it depends on the demographic and, and certainly language has a, a huge part of it. Like it's harder to do things like that if you're dealing with uh, with a language barrier. And so it was more difficult for me to engage in that level with students in Costa Rica because they, they didn't know if I was just getting the language wrong or if I was actually joking. So there's another... A whole nother layer of like, what is this guy talking about? Uh, because, you know, every time I opened my mouth, they were just like, I don't know, let's, how do we make sense of, of, <laughs> of any of this? Um, but I'd say within, within this culture, within this culture here today, um, the preschoolers that I engage with, about uh, 80% will be in that category of they know it's a joke. Um, they may not know if I 
know that what I'm talking <laughs> about. Like they maybe they're on that side. They were they're just like they think it's silly because they're like this isn't real. And then within that 20%, you don't always know which response is, you know, certainly like a a child that may that may be on the spectrum would never they they might not respond at all. Um they might just do something like a, almost a, like a non sequitur. <laughs> and, and so it's just like, I don't know what he said. Um, or maybe they weren't even there to hear. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of other possibilities, but the category of <clears throat> students that are really so like super literal is very narrow. Um, and I want to know who those students are so that so that I can respect them because I don't want to be just constantly like doing this these humorous you know jabs at at students that that are not that they don't think like that or they don't come from that place it's like when I call it a diagnostic it's a diagnostic it's like okay I learned something about about the student now uh, here's how I'm going. Here's how I'm going to change my uh, my engagement. And one of the ways that I might uh, engage with that student with humor is not directly. What I would do is say, uh, if that student was um, engaged in communication with another student pretty heavily, but and the other student could engage in that sort of humor. Um, then I may engage indirectly with the other student so that that uh, student who's very literal could watch what happens and see the exchange and, and, and maybe deflate the, um, the danger of the humor. But it's a very conscious thing. And it's not, you know, at no point do I go into a, a class and say, this is my mission is that that kid who's literal, I'm going to get them to joke. <laughs> you know, like, because it's again, that's an authentic reaction. I mean, I think that's, it, it sounds like that your reaction would have been authentically yours. Right. Right. James. I mean, it's like saying that this is the house that you grew up in. This is probably how you would have reacted based on, yeah, absolutely. Where um, you were coming from. It could not have been inauthentic because I wasn't trying to game the situation to get some kind of uh, uh, a different or better result. I mm-hmm. think at mm-hmm. a later age when, you know, kids have developed, I'm not sure if I, it's well past object constancy that they might be more prone to that. What My question for you would be, um, would you ever take that student aside? Would you ever have gone up to my younger self and said, hey, you know what? Sometimes I just say silly things because I think sometimes it's fun to be silly. And, um, you know, maybe there aren't people in your life that do that. And that's that's okay too. But um, sometimes uh, it's fun to be silly. And um, I just wanted to let you know and, let everybody else know that's okay. Can't always be silly because you got to do some work too. I remember going around with a kid named Marty in my grade school class, pretending that we, you know, had firecrackers in our ears 
We were crawling around going galoot, 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 I think is the sound we were making. And um, so I had the capacity to be silly or non-sequential or something like that. But um, I'm pretty sure that one got me in some kind of trouble. They, they wanted to straighten it out. Really cross some lines there, James. Um, you got to dial back on the menace. Well, the answer to your question is like, yes. So I personally am very selective about when I spill the beans about anything. (laughs) Yes. Right. Very. It's the last thing that I will ever do. But if it's very conscious, but if it's the thing that needs to happen, I will absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a way, you're talking about breaking character there. Yeah. Yeah. A... I mean, it's it's a different part of the character. You might be breaking the fourth wall um, where all of a sudden, you know, I'm always looking for how can I engage in this in a way that the maximum amount of learning can happen out of what I do. And sometimes just telling someone something is the maximum amount of learning that you're going to get. Right. I mean, you've dialed back to the, like you've, you've resisted and, or attempted every other potential that could come like out of it. And the bottom line is the only thing that will take place is this one tidbit of, okay, here's the information. Right. I mean, we really, like would contrast that to a lot of what takes place in the classroom is the actual opposite. That's what's primarily taking place where we're, we've talked about this before. Uh, the question is being given and the answer, and you better be ready on Monday to, to give that back to me one more time. The question will be this and then the answer and then be ready. So the, 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 gut reaction to that super flux in society and education and in church um, is to minimize that ever coming up and hopefully maximize any other angle on the, on the, on the possibility of learning to take place unless it has to resort to that sort of thing. Yes. And, and in the case of safety or, mm. uh, or a potential like lawsuit, emotional, <laughs> yeah. that for sure. But, uh, <clears throat> but in an, in an emergency and what I, the way that I would qualify an emergency is that people have emotional emergencies all the time. And if I've misjudged something or if something evolves, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To a place where I'm like, this is an emotional emergency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You do that like a wilderness first responder, you know, goes <laughs> up and they're not joking around about like where, what happened? I'm here to help. Tell me your name that, you know, the, the, the. so in that situation where, where you're in an emotional emergency, yeah, it, it makes sense to do that. When I think back on, uh, just uh, the, this last year, I had a student that uh, moved up to kindergarten 
Um, but so he was, he was a student that perennially had a very difficult time joking, mostly if it wasn't on his terms. And this is a very different situation. So we'll call this uh, student Rusty. And Rusty used to like to say when he'd see me, hi, Mr. Poopy Pants. <laughs> right. And I would say, hi, Rusty Busty. That's not my name. My name is Rusty. <laughs> right. Well, that's very Adlerian. <laughs> And I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Rusty Krusty. That's not my name. It's my, my name is just Rusty. Okay, uh -huh. just Rusty. How are you today? Right? Like, so you become just as literal as uh, they are. Yeah, right. As at mirroring back that, that literalism that they don't want to accept in other people. They want to be in charge of the joking. That's not a mutual communication sort of situation. Right. right? So in this case, um, then my presence there is absolutely to begin to feel out what are the parameters of what he can mutually joke with. Yeah, you know, let's let's um let's dial in on this example. I think it's a great one. Um because we have to look at what tends to happen in those situations, right? And then and then kind of almost reframe what you're actually doing because there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. um, what did he call you? Mr. Poopy Pants. Mr. Poopy Pants, right? Okay. So you do have the potential to go to what we were discussing before was your bottom line. Hey, don't name call. Oh, I could that, say, hey, I don't right. like the way that that makes me feel. And you... Uh -huh are making me feel bad right now. Uh -huh. Right. Say that, 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 yep. that hurts my feelings because that's not my name. I could go through that whole. Yeah. And, and, and thing. you, and, and I'm going to actually question you on your integrity, let alone your professionalism, because you. you did not stop that, which just, you know, go is rampant now in kindergarten. Um, so what's up with that? Mr. Poopy pants. Yeah, because what what I'm measuring is also the authentic communication that his peers have with him. And mm, I can watch okay. him call other kids poopy pants. And the reaction that other kids give is, hey, he called me Mr. He called me poopy pants. And, and so they look, you know, especially in, t in classes where the teacher sets themselves up to be the mediator. This is what a lot of, a lot of teachers, the way that they fulfill their ego is that they want to be the judge and jury and psychologist for the entire, you know, class of, of 25, four, four-year-olds. Um, to me, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't fulfill my ego. Um, I don't want to be a policeman. I don't want to be a psychologist. I don't want to be a, a, a mediator. I am a colleague in play. That's what I am. Mm. So your kids do not see me as a teacher. They don't call me teacher. Played, you played back with him by he, he called you poopy pants. So you're playing. Absolutely. Back. So I'm playing. Also, by, well, but it's a really important to frame this because it's not just the engagement of play. You're also in this other dimension thinking of let's let's observe 
his response or let's observe the whole classroom to see how much this kid can, can deal with some of his own medicine, right. And right. measure whether or not anyone else in his classroom is actually giving it right back to him. And right. let's I'm see very, very choosy right? about what I'm modeling and what I'm modeling to the other students is how they might change their reaction to something that they experience on a regular basis that they don't like. And well, rather okay. than yelling, rather than telling the teacher, looking for someone else to moderate, how can they uh, be autonomously in control of the situation and do it in, in a healthy way? I, you know, I was with, I had the student since he was six months old. So I watched the progression happen and we, right. we, we worked on it for those four years. And now, now you're, there's all kind of eyes. This is where like, we're, we're, we're not talking about textbook approaches to situation. I mean, the nuances and, and variables on all of this are infinite. Because we also would throw in, you know, not only the timeline in your relationship with this student, right, that got you to the point where that's what's going to take place. But then there's also these observing eyes. And I want to speak about a couple of them. Mm -hmm. One is that that fellow educator, right, that's lining up her or his kindergarten in the door right next to you while this interaction takes place, right? Right student calls the teacher poopy pants and the teacher playfully as if he's a child responds back. Right. And that whole like landslide, right. You're really having to juggle all sorts of things happening in this one sliver of a moment. We don't always have a chance to just slow down and kind of talk about it. It's nice. Cause then you have the child, right. That's that you're supposed to model for. And you've been called poopy pants and you called him what? Antsy rusty pants. busty. Rusty busty. <laughs> okay. You know, Whatever. yeah, right. Well, so how, I mean, right now you've got, you've potentially damaged the other child by teaching him to name call back. And you also haven't met the expectations of the colleague and yet you're you're really trying to just execute a great opportunity for observation of the rest of the students, learning, interaction, authenticity with the student, you know, and forwarding your thing along. It gets complex. Yeah, I mean, so kids learn this really quick. Kids learn that if the way that they solve their problems with their peers is to always have an adult do it for them, then the child who is you know, instigating things and then watches that happen. So the ch one child instigates something, another child gets, you know, upset, they, you know, and so they get a teacher involved. That only works out if the teacher is present. And as soon as the teacher is not present anymore, then that same scenario happens, but without any restrictions, without any inhib inhibitions. So it happens far worse. Right. It and so that's where you get bullying. So everyone's, everyone's wondering, like, how does bullying happen? Well, it means it's when one child tests the ability of another child to deal with their uh, with with some sort of catalyst or or some sort of push or poke, and then 
the child that's being poked, the way that they solve it is not through themselves, not through something autonomously in them. What they do is look for a mediator. Well, that's fine in that moment. But as soon as you're on the playground or in the hallway or in a situation where the mediator isn't present anymore, then it's like gloves are off. And all of the the irritation that the first child had that wanted to cause the irritation in the in the first place, then it's to an extreme because it because they're going to punish the other person for getting someone else involved. This is it, you watch this happen, like all three of us probably experienced this exact situation happen in school. Well, it's not any different today. Like humans are still humans. And the idea that a moderator, that an adult moderator is going to solve this problem or, or, or try to reason with everybody and, and find some mindfulness, you know, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do, um, that we shouldn't do activities as a group as, as, and, and work, build, work at building those skills uh, because we can, we can build mindfulness in three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. Absolutely, we should be doing that. But the idea that you're going to solve the bullying issue uh, by getting moderators involved is a fiction. And it's one that I think is born of, of an inflated ego at the adult level or absolute denial and, and amnesia of what it was like to be young. I think in my case, I would have um, tended to look for an authority figure to uh, settle it because, again, in my situation, um, there was not a seeding of uh, rights to me. It, it, the, the right to advocate for myself was um, abrogated at every turn, in fact. And I was so used to being dictated to by, you know, a, a parental authority figure that I would be at a little bit of a loss. I was a single child till I was seven, no, five and a half. And then I had one sister. So in, in some ways, my, my parents and particularly probably my mother, since she was at home not working, but looking after me, she had more than ample opportunity to micromanage my health. Sure. But um, mm -hmm. I can think of, of three occasions um, one that I know of only by story, which I apparently punched the guy next who lived next door, uh, Charlie Oliver. He was a year older than me, too. And uh, he was kind of the big kid on the block. But mm -hmm. apparently I punched him and gave him a bloody nose. Mm. So that happened one time. Another time where I was fully conscious, um, someone was... <laughs> Were you not fully conscious? No, he said he didn't. One? He said he didn't remember doing it. it just, oh, oh, he just oh. remembers it from having been told the story, right? I, oh, okay. I was told that. Um, okay. Or I have <laughs> memories of the consequences a little bit. His mother telling my mother and, and things like that. And I don't know, that, that just didn't seem like me. Maybe I didn't do it. Many years later, I was uh, uh, working at a scout camp where someone who was younger than me, who was junior than junior to me, both in age and um, what I 
would call authority pushed me too far and I I tore into him and he got a black eye and I remember every bit of it. He was <laughs> on the top bunk in this cabin and I probably pulled him off the bunk and started wailing on him. So, so but, but that's very rare in my recollection. Well, is there, so James, is there, as you think back, and it, it, I understand that all of us as we, you know, our memories for our youth are selective at best, but do you recall how the emergence of your self-advocacy, you know, maybe certain stages of that or certain times, like when you had a younger sister, did that create the need for you to self-advocate more? I mean, often I think that's what we hear about, that's what we see in terms of dual siblings and multiple siblings. Um, is well, I should ask her. My my thought is that it would have been to punish her for taking my share of the spotlight, to discourage her from advocating for herself. Ah, so your advocation. So part of your development of advocating for yourself was was to strategize that you would dissuade her from advocating for herself. Yes, or. Um, illegitimize her efforts to do so mm. sure that i mean that makes sense i i experienced that um illegitimate you know, yeah you know all of this conversation is actually hitting home uh quite a bit you know like i've got a 12 year old now and a nine-year-old and um he's the older one started middle school and you know there's some things that seem to be really rough um happening in the playground and he just you know owen's been coming home pretty bummed out and you know we we listen to what's going on and really tonight's conversation just you know what i'm feeling the most is like every time that i tried to mediate issues between the two brothers now Owen's got to figure it out on his own, but he's only learned one pattern, which was mom and dad. You know, not, not that like we solve every single one, but yeah, I'm pretty sure we solved a bunch of things that didn't need to be solved, you know, like in that, you know, I'm tired and I need this to be solved now. Yep. And, yep. and mm. cause I'm going to bed. Right. And, <laughs> and I don't have time for them to work it out. And, and so they, they didn't develop a muscle for working it out uh, night after night after night over, you know, a decade of life. Right. Um, you know, thankfully a lot of the conversations, especially today, I mean, this is how, you know, how spot on with what I'm going through. Uh, the, the relevancy is, is tremendous. Um, you know, it's, the conversation has been, well, how are others dealing with it? And um, how are you going to deal with it? And um, who are you having conversations with? And why exactly is this so upsetting? You know, it, it's all been just like questions. Um, but I'm realizing, you know, through tonight, how much you know, like when a problem surfaces, the last thing that we want to look at is like what, what participation we might've had, you know, it's, it's immediately to be like, well, who's that kid and who are his parents and what has he not learned? 
you know, and really like it could very much be like, it's not really that big of a deal, but it's a big deal. If you don't have that one person to be mediating it all the time, like you had at home. And Mm. so, you know, the issue has been created, um, not to oversimplify everything, but also to just, you know, be quick to recognize responsibilities in some of these things. Right. Sure. I I'm dealing with a high school student. He's a junior, I believe. Um, he is on the spectrum and has an IEP to delineate accommodations for, um, for his particular uh, cognitive functioning. And he has an IEP? What yeah, is that? Individual Education Plan. So this is uh-huh. uh, by law. What is that? Well, by law, uh, students that are, that are identified as needing um, extra help or help in different ways require uh, the school district to create an individual education plan plan for them Uh that talks about the accommodations that, that the uh, teachers and the school system is going to put in place to accommodate. Okay. Um, And so how long has he had this IEP? I mean, he, he is uh, as long as he's been in the school. And now they're supposed to review it. I think three years of high school. Yeah. 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 Uh, Um, What is the IEP? What's that? There's an annual review. The IEP. There's there's supposed to be an annual review, and it doesn't always happen. And uh, depending on the teachers, they can kind of say that they review it, but yeah, it's well, it depends know. on how much the parents want to advocate. That is correct, and 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 in this gentleman's case, IEP sessions, we filled it. We absolutely. had everybody right up to this to the uh, superintendent of the district there. And that, uh, and uh, they listened because they knew we were going to say <laughs> we had to say, and right. they should, you know, take right. note. <laughs> no, that and that's great. Um, Wait, so you're saying that you, your daughter had an IEP, and you right. advocated all the way up to superintendent. Right. She was in special ed for her whole. Uh, uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Experience. And in your case, Ron, you're like, nope not advocating is that what's going on here no 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 um in my in my case the school I, I i as an instructor should be by law i'm supposed to be aware of what his iep is but no one has shared it with me and that's a really big problem <laughs> that's a big problem right um because mm-hmm. just from the school's perspective someone's not doing their job like they're mm-hmm. falling short at some point um mm-hmm. because the student has to tell me what's in their IEP and what's not. And have you, if you've ever, you know, and it doesn't, I know you don't have I know to be Van. like, so, you know, if I were a high school student and, yeah, I I, and I'm just like thinking about it, I'm like, look, if I had an IEP and I could just say this um, because it was on my IEP, it would be great because you could kind of, it would be one way to manipulate the situation, right? On my behalf, I would be. I need you know, recess three times a day. Absolutely. You know, that's in my, my IEP. My IEP says this. And if there's no way for the, for the, for the instructor to check, with, with, then it's like, well, okay, oh, well, man. I just, like, I just have to believe him. 
And there's no, you know, honestly, there's no reason for me not to believe this gentleman. He's not, but the whole point is that he is on the spectrum. He's one of my favorite students. He is so unique. And, um, and the way that he looks at the world is, is wonderful. Uh, one of his challenges is that he uh, has a really difficult time if someone else around him uses profanity. Uh-huh. Can you imagine um, how hard that might be to be in a high school class full of yeah. other students? Yeah. Um, he survived junior high school. I can't see why it would be a problem. <laughs> right. So... This child wants me question. to intervene on his behalf every yeah, time right. another student uses profanity. Right. And anything that he thinks is not decent. Um, uh-huh. Now, if we compound that and we say, well, in addition to that, um, he comes from a very conservative religious family, family unit. Um, and so his what he thinks is acceptable behavior uh, for himself and for the world is is fine for him, but not a reality for the rest of the world, right? You can't hold the rest of the world to your high standards. And uh, otherwise you just move through life being really, really upset, disappointed and slighted all the time, right? So uh, a recent exchange was, uh, he, he said, you know, these students are using profanity. You need to do something about it because that's in my IEP. I said, no, your IEP says nothing about what I'm supposed to do to other students. And I can guarantee you it doesn't. Um, What I'm going to do is help you develop ways that you can self-advocate and autonomously manage your emotions and your feelings when things that upset you happen, because they're always going to happen. That is the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um And it was, it was a difficult for conversation for him to have at first, but by the end of the class, he came back and told me why he had raised his voice. And he said, I think I was just frustrated because of this and this and this. He was really hung up that day on a scolding that one of the administrators gave the entire school because some kids were doing something that they were not supposed to be doing. And so he decided he hated the administrator because she was rude. And they said, well, was she rude to you? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, she was rude to everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, are you mad at her? And I said, I have no reason to be mad at her. You know, I, I wasn't there and she wasn't talking to me. And I said, besides that, it's like, she's pregnant and, you know, Maybe there are other things going on with her, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, she's worried about, you know, everything that's happening with her job. I mean, could, do, do, um, I said, do you know what it's like to be pregnant? And he said, no, and I never will be. And I said, well, that, that's fine. That's, that's a good, it's a good, you know, insight to have. How can you place yourself in her shoes and, you know, and judge her for the way that she's reacting if she's not really talking to you and he was the one that came up with that, you know, he acts like that when he, his anxiety level is high. And so maybe her anxiety level was high. I said, maybe it was, I don't know if it was, but that's, that's certainly, you know, a more productive way to 
move forward, <laughs> you know, with our conversation here and the class than it is to just focus on how you don't like this person. Um, right. And so it's always an evolving thing, but, but we're in this situation of needing to be able to respond authentically, but, you know, and, and in this case, it's like, I have to, I do by law have to respond to his IEP, but I'm also having to respond to 20 other students and their needs. And just because mm-hmm. they're just because the other students don't have an IEP doesn't mean <laughs> that their that their education is somehow uh, less meaningful or deserves right. less attention. Right. And that's part of the, that's, that's a real challenge. I mean, in my opinion, I think everyone in school should have an IEP. Absolutely. Why, why wouldn't everyone in school have an IEP? That's in fact, if we did that, it would give instructors a very clear roadmap on how they might, you know, be differentiating between one student and another, you know, in, in ways that maybe they can't possibly imagine because the IEP has information that no teacher, you know, when you get a new student, no, no teacher knows that student and all, all the things that they're coming from. IEP does a really great job of like setting this up and saying, here's a student. The, the, the problem with an IP is that it also sets sets yeah. teachers up with prejudice, right? Yeah. Like, oh, it's kind of like, oh, the Pygmalion. It's kind of like the Pygmalion effect in some ways. Yeah. Wow. It is. Yeah. It is. So, so tricky. It's very so tricky. tricky. It's very tricky. But if I we get back that... to, you know, uh, the notion of authenticity, and if we support the development of that authenticity in all of our teachers, and we support them when they um, respond authentically to a child. Um, I think everybody comes out ahead and I'll, I'll tell a story about when, um, this, we were training, my wife and I were training a group of uh, people in an emotional intelligence class. And this guy wanted his wife to be able to sit in for free. And, um, he just brought her to class the second day or something like that and, and thought that would be okay somehow, which really upset my spouse. And, you know, what they say when mama ain't happy, nobody happy. Um, <laughs> so I took upon myself to, you know, discipline this guy. Now, he was the only one there in class, but I, I pretty much told him what I thought his idea in no uncertain terms. And he says, and, and, and you call yourself a, a teacher of emotional intelligence was that emotionally intelligent. I can't tell you how I answered that. <laughs> I hope I said, yes, that was emotionally intelligent. That was the authentic response. Your behavior elicited from me in that moment. And if you think something else is, is appropriate, you need to think some more. And you're certainly <laughs> wrong about me. <laughs> now, oh, wow. am i making am i making excuses for myself maybe some i don't know but at the same time we have blunted our behavior and and muted our authenticity and stifled our true voice oftentimes to such an extent that um we're giving off pretty much false information false indicators to the people around us much of the time and then when they respond to us according to those indicators 
and we feel lonely or um, offended or, or whatever, uh, it's kind of, we have ourselves to blame there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I, certainly within the, the education sector, there is an expectation um, that everyone should be able to handle criticism, but not provide any rebuttal. Right. And, and that's kind of the opposite. It's, it's interesting because when I look at it, it's like, well, wait, why do you, why do you say that that happens a lot? Well, particularly in the call out culture and, and the cancel culture, it's not a dialogue. Uh-huh. It's not like you did this. Is, is that, say, is that oh, similar? You know. is, is the connection to the classroom too much to where, you know, they're, they're having to take so much and there's not that in that back and forth it's mostly one way with perhaps very particular questions at the tail end well i'm specifically talking you like your job (laughs) yeah from 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 a colleague perspective it's like well you know it isn't because what you see happening is that it's an it's an upset of hierarchy like every chance that people can get because there we have a culture that rewards or thinks it's acceptable to criticize any part of the apparatus that looks like it has any amount of power, right? Mm-hmm. If it looks like it has power, we want to take down that power because that is inequity. Now, wow. when you, if you were to actually like sit down and talk about it, you'd be like, well, okay, you want the power to um, hire the plumber when the uh, kids, when the kids flush down a, a box full of uh paper towels down the okay down poopy the pants okay uh you want so you want to pay the property bill this month you want the power to do that <laughs> like it's fascinating how we have really misconstrued responsibility for power right those who have more responsibility oh well they must have more power and they must also have more privilege um when every job that I've ever had, uh, the more responsibility that I had, you know, whatever the job title was, the, the more illustrious the job title was, it meant the worse my jobs were. <laughs> when I managed the <laughs> event center, when someone vomited all over the carpet, guess who had to clean it up? <laughs> like, I'm the one who's out there cleaning up vomit because I am the person at the top. And the other people are like, no, I'm not going to do that for $12 an hour. (laughs) So, so like we were in a situation where it's like, well, you know, we can delude ourselves by thinking that those people who seemingly have more responsibility um, are somehow abusing their power. And in the education system that has filtered down uh, to a place of really pulling all of the pins of leverage out of an instructor. Like the instructors have real no leverage to push or pull or, you know, there's no, there, what used to be that the lowest common denominator of it is that the teacher may be in control of the grade. Uh, but um, if the if were, parents complain enough, they'll get a turn there. You were, you were talking about leverage um, in earlier conversations this week 
Um, let's reframe that a little bit here in terms of this loss of leverage um, that you're stating teachers have. You were idealizing a little bit that before teachers, one of the leverages that teachers had before was that there were consequences. And if the parents found out kids were willing to do anything and learn in any way, just to make sure that things were good when they got home with mom and dad. Well, so statistically, kids are not motivated by grades. And it's always been that way. Kids are not motivated by grades. What's happening is that if a family, if the parents are motivated by grades, then then Uh they have enough leverage to impress upon the child that you better get good grades, right? You better Uh do what you need to do. But it isn't the grade itself. It is, is it gr- the grading system that is yeah. providing, you know, yeah. this amount of, of just, you know, profound uh, motivation for all people to do better, mm-hmm. to act on merit. No, what we see is that if you have parents that are demanding that of you as a, as a student, then that's where um, that motivation comes from. You know, and, and before not in all there cases, were more I'm making, parents, I'm, I'm, I'm making a generalization. So it's, a, so right. it isn't that you don't have the, the, you know, right. Rudiana right. is actually a really good example of someone who did not have pressure from her parents to get good grades, but she uh-huh. w- looked at the situation of her community in her life and, and she made what needed to happen, happen so that she uh, could, I mean, she gravitated to that, to school and to grades as a, uh, as a system for her achievement early on in her life. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and and so you know we're we're talking in generalizations here, but well, well let's just ask James. James, um, how what was your parents' relationship with your teachers? If you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, or if you weren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, was there were there consequences at home for what your behavior was, what your conduct was? you know, in school. Absolutely. Um, But in a way, I would also say, you're looking at me in grade school in 1959, 1960, something like that. Sure. And 95% of the people of the parents expected the teachers to set boundaries and to report on the you know, success of their kids' conduct and things like that. Um, I think that changed over time. In fact, um, as parents became lazier and less engaged, they resented more and more the fact that the teachers were bringing to their attention the (laughs) failure to control themselves. Wow. Right. Um, Wow. But... As I grew older, then I'd suspect, you know, parent-teacher conferences disappeared maybe in middle school, certainly by high school, I think. But by that time, my teachers would have had good things to say about me, more or less. I mean, maybe one teacher per year that upset me or that I didn't like might have found fault with me, but I was pretty 
I was trained up, man. I was trained up. And um, it was easier for me to uh, capitulate or to uh, concede. Or there's another word I want to use here. but Capitalize. <laughs> no, one, capitalize. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You can use that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was in my interest to um, give in, to co- to uh, correspond. I'm going to find the... Acquiesce. Yes, acquiesce is great. Let's go with acquiesce. Yes. Bam, Mr. Poopy Pants scores. <laughs> if you said that to, to various teachers in my school, of course, I don't know how old this child is, if this is like first grade or kindergarten or something. Um, no, that, it's, it's, pre, it's preschool. It's preschool. preschool. I don't know what the response would have been. One kid stepped out of line and the uh, Spanish teacher took one of those big tall trash cans, put it over his head and shoved him down to the principal's office in this, you know, four and a half foot (laughs) trash can. (laughs) Like Victor de Nandes Cruz would say, you got to have your tips on fire. Yeah, but this is illustrating perfectly what I was saying uh, earlier this week is, is that now I didn't say it quite like you said it, James, that that the laziness of the parents has uh, uh, that they may have not appreciated that sort of feedback uh, coming from the instructor. But what we've done is we've removed as a society, we still expect teachers to be surrogate parents. We're sending children to a school where they're spending eight hours of their day. What modeling are we expecting? And who's the who is the parent then in that in, in that moment? We expect them to be surrogate parents, but we expect those surrogate parents to be friends, to be the, the kind, you know, generous person who lets the student walk all over them and you know, we'll never do anything wrong. I, I remember, you know, teaching in Costa Rica uh, and and learning about the child's bill of rights. And, uh, and this is how it works, is that, you know, the child has the right to uh, an education and has the right to, to a you know, quality home and, and mm-hmm. this and that. And within, after the, the, that the child has a right to an education, it has the, the child has the right to have fun. And so what happens fun, is, is, fun is if, the one thing that money can't buy. It can in Costa Rica. <laughs> so you have, what happens is that if the teacher gives an assignment that the child deems is not fun, uh-oh. then you as a teacher are violating their right <laughs> to both an education and to fun violating their constitutional, their constitutional right. right and so uh, you know and so what we have in this country is something that's that's effectively it's it's more or less the same thing you know it's not mm-hmm. so spelled out i mean that that What's was that? really clear um that really you know, if I'm dealing with a population whose parents uh, of, of children, uh, whatever the age, um, but their parents are not really concerned about grades, then the kids aren't really concerned about grades. And so 
what is my leverage? You're, it's a compulsory system. The, the, these, these kids have to be there. In, in many cases, even though it's an elective class, they've just been thrown there by an administration that doesn't know what else to do with them. So okay, no. So wait, so, wait, wait. You don't have assessments. Assessments are no longer leverage. No. Obviously, we're talking on generalizations, right? Um, and but but they used to be, and we can get into that. I'm not. But but then you are also saying that parents used to be, and now parents are less and less, if at all, leverage. Well, it used to be that you know, and and. Even when I was in school, if my teachers called home and they were like, hey, you know, Ron has been acting up today. I don't know. He's been, this is what he, this is kind of what he got into, this and that. I would have been in a world of hurt when I went home. And so the fear of what would happen at home was mm -hmm. what drove my conduct at school. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I had no, if there were no percussions at home, what would I have been like? Who knows? Right. We probably then you, wouldn't be having this conversation. Today. And then these um, leverages, once they're, they're somewhat solid, other leverages manifest upon those, which would have been peer, peer to peer leverage in that I, if you're messing around, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because sure. of those other two consequences, right? And sure. so all of a sudden, those two manifest a third, right? And then those three manifest, you know, like uh, as a society, the, the village is only 100, 200 people, you know, like that that smallness of the whole thing, like everybody in town knows you is lost also within, you know, like these bigger systems, right? Where mm -hmm. there's not the immediate um, adults, in at home and let alone is there anything known between who you are in school maybe 25 30 35 minutes away and who you are you know in the neighborhood or so on and so forth it's all very disconnected connectedness was a form of leverage as well yeah and absolutely that lack of con that disconnectedness where it seems like everything is connected because at least a bus takes you from here to there like but really nothing's connected the same people that you shop from do not know who the science teacher is so and and it's nobody's fault we're not just like shooting at things it's it's just looking at like realities like that used to be a leverage when like they not only know you, but it's you're all shopping from the same people and that sort of, you know, as we go back, there's all these other different kind of things that we're creating that leverage and that possibility for this thing to work that just aren't there anymore. Yeah, correct. If, if I was going to mess around when I was a child, I would have done it in a neighborhood far away from my own neighborhood <laughs> because I didn't want any of my neighbors mm -hmm. seeing and then reporting back to my parents, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know yeah. it, and, and so that, that's really, that's really what I'm getting at. It's if you have, what we have is an antiquated system that has, that has evolved and it's evolved in the way that it's evolved and that's fine. But if you don't change all of the other pieces of it that are now irrelevant, like, well, if you're, if you're not going to have any accountability and no leverage, why do you have a compulsory system? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on, why, on what why does it would you stand do it? 
It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Why would you have teachers that uh, that can't choose their students yeah. and students that can't choose their teachers? Well, there there's such a you know there there's such a curve to so much of this when when you know compulsory education and all of that comes into play and you know all of this constructivist um theory is being put into practice you know what fascinating times right to to create these places and these structures that have a beginning and they have end and nobody's measuring out the disastrous effects, right? It's like implementing, <laughs> why not draw up a COVID analogy to just throw in the mix and really lose some listeners, <laughs> but like just throwing in a vaccine and then, you know, nobody right. knows what it's going to be like 25 years down the line, but it's effective for now. You know, like those were exciting times at the cusp yeah, not at the cusp, but at the onset of, um, you know, educational system. And it's not even a bad thing. It's an exciting thing. Like we're going to move, we're going to, you know, and, 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 and the, this whole thing kind of then reaches its climax where it, you know, I don't know if we would, if you can speak towards the, that progression in that way, but it's just kind of like, uh, oh, wait a minute. What? <laughs> Crash landing. Um, where, where would you place, uh, you know, different moments in the last 200 years or so, um, where would that point be like, ah, and then we started losing it uh, or if ever. Well, I think that, um, if we look at the conventional education system as having to respond to the advancements in technology, mm -hmm. And, and maybe if we just looked at its ability to do so or not, uh, it, it may shed some light on what and why we're in the place that we're at, right? We're excessively individualistic. We want people to, um, you know, from a market share perspective, we want to extract all the information about someone so that we can sell to them cleaner, easier, faster, more streamlined. And, uh, and in doing so, we've created a system where you're rewarded for branding yourself, right? And, uh, and so kids and adults, everyone has, you know, if you have a LinkedIn page, if you have a Facebook page, if you have an Instagram, you are uh, a product. And that product produces something. And the way that you the currency that you're gaining is, you know, approval or not. And so we've turned approval into this public thing that is not really authentic because do we really say what we like or what we don't like? And what does that even mean? You know, we've reduced uh, preference to a binary system of like, either I like this or I don't like this, or I just, or, you know, I guess there's a third thing. You just don't do anything. That's the problem. That's the world that everyone is living in now, you know? So uh, let's look at Fowler's third stage uh, of faith development, because that's dealing with adolescence, right? And, and so it's dealing with this, the place that we would be emerging in, <laughs> into 
Now, all this discussion about like the high, like high school students, what's what what's happening technologically, what's happening with the the dissolution of the expectations between parents and instructors, and you know, taking all the teeth out of instructors, but still expecting them to do all the things that they were doing before and more. Um, let's take a look at it. stage three. Says uh, this is the synthetic and conventional stage of faith. So this is arising in adolescence, age twelve to adulthood. It's characterized by conformity to authority and the religious development of a personal identity. That's interesting. Any conflicts with one's beliefs are ignored at this stage due to their fear of threat from inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's unpack that. Let's say, okay, well, what is, from, in, from an adolescent perspective today, what is the authority that adolescents are conforming to? If this is true, like if their faith is in an authority, what is the authority that they recognize? Because it isn't the school system. <laughs> it isn't no. their parents. No. What is then the authority that adolescents are conforming to? Well, it would be, I mean, it can be, I, I, I really think of two things, popular, popular culture for lack of a better word, that's coming through media. That's mm -hmm. an authority. That's yep. declaring what Absolutely. is and what is not important. Um, although you said no to education, I think I think you said no to teachers. Like there's this interesting aspect of education that does slip through, right? Um, I wonder what you think of this. Like when science is kind of like the the Neanderthal um, ancestor of technology. And, and, and kids do have it, find an authority in technology and technological advancements. I agree. It, they I agree. are technology, very aware. Absolutely. They are very aware. No. Uh, in an uncanny way towards where things are going and how quickly they are going and you better be on top of that wave whereas in you know a lot of us like um you know may have followed that wave as much as we could for about 30s 35s and then as we approach like into the fourth decade we're like that's gonna i mean we you know we could bring james into the loop of the conversation right now and just be like there's all this right yeah so james we're we're talking about fowler's stages of faith stage three is the synthetic conventional faith stage and so we were just talking through what is the authority that adolescents today recognize um and my my comment was that it's not parents typically and it's not the school or the education system it's something else it's a culture it's the cultural expectations of uh social media and um television if people still watch television um movies um it's an image-based um, 
reflection of what some people must think we are or it would be good if we were that's completely false to our our nature as human beings did i get that right yeah well i i i agree with all of that carl was talking about technology itself being an authority uh with adolescents oh, well, yeah. and i think that that yeah. makes absolute sense so i i did i had to leave there and i haven't this didn't seem to be part of the what i need to discuss before but it is now um we are all just recovering from covid at my house and i am um, leaving town uh in two days so um actually now it's about a almost a day so I have some things that I have to address with those people um, that live with me. And um, if you don't take my word for it, I'm going to call my wife. Well, if she's not happy, nobody's happy. So let's just <laughs> keep her happy. <laughs> no, I was going to say, see, I'm still appealing to authority. Well, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but you've authentically identified your authority. You, 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 there's, there's no problem there. And it doesn't happen to be technology or, or, or your peers. So I guess you consider your, your Well, peers, if, if another time you're going to be, um, you know, revisiting this at all, I, I have uh, looked at it some and it um, rekindled a great deal of interest in Piaget for me. And by the time it gets to stage three, there there could be some. Um, I I don't think that young people or little people have have faith. Hmm. I think you've got to be logical. You've got to have logic and the capacity to be unfaithful before you could have faith. And I think that. Um, particularly these younger stages, I think there's probably very intense religious and spiritual experience going on that is being eroded by enculturation and the introduction of language. But I, I stumbled a little bit on the notion of faith at that. Sure. Yeah, so. and, and we we pointed out last week or, two, or a couple of weeks ago that that he specifically uses faith, but in this, uh, what was it, stage two, mythic literal, he actually comes in and says, or no, stage one here. So he's, it's called stages of faith, but here in stage one, intuitive projective, he says religion is learned made mainly through experiences, stories, images, and the people that one comes into contact with. So this is suggesting that he's making religion synonymous with faith. And I, mm -hmm. and oh. I, I would question that. Um, if you have time at a later, I would love to hear a question that I that I would have for you around this is, does Julia have faith and when did it happen? How did it happen? When did it emerge? When did you see it? What is her faith? Like what, what, what does she have faith in? Because that's the, 
experiment that I would do with my own kids and, and with Carl's kids. It's, it's a question that I would ask anyone with children, you know, based on your children, what, you know, where does any of that make sense and how do you make sense of it? Or what do you, you know, you know, and, and maybe you just said it. I mean, that's, I'd love to visit that with you. Um, it's a longer answer than it warrants yeah. a longer answer than I could give yeah. now, but it's a rather interesting answer. And part of it's, you know, unknown to me still. But um, I can tell you some interesting things about what I might call her, her spiritual development. Well, those are things that we'd love to hear about. Um, we'll let you sign off and uh, All right. take care of your family. And, it's great to hang with you guys. Thank you oh, so man. much. It has been awesome. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank great. you for being with us today. Thanks for the great work you both do. I know that there are a whole lot of kids and parents that are better off as a result of your tireless efforts. <laughs> really great to see you again, James. Love you, ma'am. Love you too, Carl. Right. Good night. Take care. Good night. Hey, say hi to your family. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.